Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. As promised, this is a quick podcast uh, in response to Rishi Sunak's speech, his first as Prime Minister, to the Conservative Party conference. And unavoidably and inevitably a genuinely significant speech uh, in what will be almost certainly a pre-election party conference. So I'm going to look at that. I've had some fantastic questions uh, and points already from the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. If it's okay with all of you, I'll save them uh, for early next week when we get together for the uh, beginning of the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. So keep them coming in, steverick14 at icloud.com. But here are a few reflections just minutes after the Sunak speech. Sunak faced one very difficult challenge. Uh, He had to be seen as the change maker uh, at the end of a long period of Conservative rule. He has no choice but to pose as a candidate for change because every focus group, opinion poll, and every other paralyzing instrument that measures public opinion is clear about one point. Voters ache for change at a time when there is a sense, with good reason, that nothing much works in the United Kingdom. It's all a hard slog. People feel very insecure on many different levels. They need change. And for Sunak to get back into the game, he has to be the change candidate. So the politics of the speech is very interesting because it's a big challenge. Uh, I'll come on to how he tried to address that challenge in a second, but let's look at the one figure who managed this successfully, which was John Major when he became Prime Minister in 1990 after a long period of Conservative rule and won in 1992. Now, there's one factor that Major had in his favour that Sunak hasn't got, and it's a huge factor. By then, uh, and certainly by the election of 1992, Neil Kinnock, uh, Major's opponent in that election, had been leader of the opposition for nine years. It's too long. No leader of the opposition can really retain or establish support amongst the electorate for that period of time. A leader of the opposition cannot be judged by the implementation of policy. He or she has no power to implement policy. All it is is words, words, words. And after nine years, voters are inevitably, on the whole, fed up with such a figure. And by 1992, uh, they were fed up with Neil Kinnock. And I've I've spoken to Neil about this, and he agrees uh, that it was just too long in that position of relative impotence compared with the Prime Minister. In contrast, Major seemed fresh and new. So he more easily could pose as a change candidate against a very long-serving leader of the opposition. Uh, Now, Sunak faces Keir Starmer, who's in a very different position. Starmer was unlucky in some respects to become leader during a pandemic, Uh, It meant that the public hardly saw him, and when they did, it was giving a broadcast or whatever from a room in his house. Uh, It was a completely artificial start uh, as a leader of the opposition. 
There is one advantage for Starmer in that, and it's this. He is still relatively fresh to voters, to the point that a lot of voters say they don't really know who he is. Um, now, that can become a problem, but there is one advantage to that. You can more easily pose as the change candidate when you are evidently relatively new on the political scene. And uh, so that is Starmer's advantage. That makes it even more challenging for Sunak to pose as the change candidate compared with Major. But there is another difference, and it's this. Major, far more effectively than Sunak, became the personification of change right away when he became prime minister in the autumn of 1990. So one of the reasons why Thatcher had become so unpopular so soon, when you think about it, after her landslide victory in 1987, uh, was the poll tax, the new local tax um, that was to be imposed across the country, a flat rate tax irrespective of uh, income and wealth. It was deeply unpopular. And Major, on day one, in effect, got rid of it. This emblem of what had become an example of where the Tories were going badly wrong. Uh, he put Michael Heseltine in charge of a review of the poll tax. Heseltine was known to be a fervent opponent of it. So in effect, the most unpopular domestic policy of that era was abolished on day one. Major was so different in character to Thatcher, as Neil Kinnock has reflected since, voters thought there had been an election and a change of government. But he moved quickly in the space available to a new prime minister in the early days. Sunak didn't. Uh, it's only a year on when he poses as the change candidate. Early on, in order to secure his position with this increasingly restive party, he made no attempt to overtly distance himself from Truss and Johnson. Uh, indeed, he picked figures associated with Johnson. Famously, Truss sacked Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. And when you think about it, it's quite a low bar to be sacked by Truss for not being good enough. Um, Sunak brought her back and did so because he felt the need to cement his position within the Conservative Party and indeed felt he needed Braverman's support to win the leadership from Johnson, who was planning to come back and fight that campaign uh, when Sunak finally got elected after the fall of trust. So rather than posing as the change candidate then and immediately making an assessment of what form the change should take, beyond, of course, the changes to Truss's economic policy, but they had already been announced while Truss was sitting there as Prime Minister by Jeremy Hunt in his kind of emergency autumn statement in that mad autumn of last year. So the issues about integrity and trust, so challenged by Johnson's misbehaviour, and then the chaos of trust, there was no overt distancing, no equivalent of the abolition of the poll tax. So it's very interesting how he tried to do this in his party conference speech to become now the personification of change. He clearly doesn't dare make it a change from the chaos of recent years, Johnson and Truss, and uh, he can't distance himself from the 
dark consequences that are being played out now of the Cameron Osborne economic experiment uh, of turbocharged Thatcherism in response to a global financial crash because he supports that policy to this very day. Um, so what he has done to deal with the conundrum of being a change maker in a long-serving government is to announce he's uh, going to be the change from the last 30 years, in inverted commas. Now, the problem with this is it is so vague as to be meaningless. His attempt at definition at, in inverted commas, the last 30 years was the focus was more on campaigning than taking the tough long-term decisions. But is that what really binds Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, Truss? You know, it, it, it is ridiculous. Now, you can make an assessment of orthodoxies and assumptions about some of the things that have gone wrong over the past 30 years, but Sunak can't do that because he shares many of the assumptions and orthodoxies. Um, they come from a sort of orthodox treasury position that capital spending on the whole is wasteful. Um, he supported uh, austerity economics that were, as I say, an extension of Thatcherite policies, but, but more to the right of her. Uh, they were real-term spending cuts. She never did that in the 80s. So he's just trying to diss himself vaguely from the last 30 years. But it doesn't mean anything. It, it, there are echoes, actually, with Truss's anti-growth coalition uh, that she tried to define herself against last year. When you analyse it after a bit, the anti-growth coalition, as far as it meant anything at all, given that, you know, both Labour and the Tories are saying growth is the thing that is what it's all about, um, is the only way you can define it is that it virtually includes everybody. And the last 30 years includes a hell of a lot of people. So I think his attempt to frame the past in that vague way and to try and leap away from it just doesn't work. It, it's not compelling or precise enough for it to work. So that's the politics of it. I just don't think it's going to work for him. He could, a year ago, have said, integrity is going to be at the heart of the government now, after what's happened with Johnson and all the rest of it. And there could have been policy implications beyond what Jeremy Hunt had already done to show he understands the scale of the problems we all face on a daily basis, whether it's trying to catch a train, come onto trains in a minute, get a hospital appointment, see a GP, all the things that convey a sense that Britain isn't working. He didn't do it then. And uh, his attempt to do so now was eccentric. The scrapping of HS2 is a huge, depressing decision. And here's, here's why. You see, he promised all these alternative uh, railway and transport projects uh, instead. However, if there is one thing of many we have learned with uh, the attempt to build a high-speed railway line in Britain is... Uh, it takes ages just to clear all the barriers to get going. 
um, you know, the political decisions in the House of Commons and elsewhere, uh, planning and so on. And what he has done, and again, it's a very vague thing, really, is to say all the money that was going to go on HS2 to Manchester will now go on these projects. A, he can't guarantee that. The money could easily disappear. The Treasury would love to snap up that money and not spend it on capital projects in a few years' time. B, um, there is no guarantee all the obstacles will be leapt over quickly to get all these projects moving. He listed a whole range of different projects, all of which are admirable, urgently necessary, etc. But the one thing HS2 had going for it is that all those hurdles had been cleared. Uh, The project was in place, uh, ready to go. And what he should have done, but he was clearly against it from the beginning, this HS2 thing, is he's right. The project has been, as ever, with big projects in Britain, badly handled and complacently handled. Now, that is partly the government's fault. Ultimately, the government was in control of the management of this project. Uh, All those involved in HS2 were, in the end, accountable to the Transport Secretary, who was accountable to the Chancellor and the Prime Minister and the rest of us. Um, But as I mentioned on the uh, podcast earlier this week, there have been so many Transport Secretaries. Clearly, a sort of complacency within the project intensified and developed. And no doubt money was misspent. Um, some of it was unavoidable, the spent the additional spending, you know, Tory MPs saying we can't have the track running through our constituency, so tunnelling had to be done and all the other things. But I'm sure money has been wasted, and I'm sure Sunak is right to take the Euston wing of the project that still has to be sorted uh, away from those who have mismanaged so far. But the answer would have been this, to say, yeah, uh, money's been wasted, We are going to make sure every halfpenny is spent well in the same way we are reducing the costs of expanding this line to Euston. We will do the same from Birmingham to Manchester. It goes ahead, but with new lines of accountability that will make sure this project does not wildly overspend any longer. That would have been, in a way, the tougher decision to take for Sunak because then he would have not been able to play this game of saying the money will go on this line and this line and that line because it would still go ahead. That's what he should have done because so many hurdles have been cleared and it's all been a waste of time. And now these hurdles will have to be leapt in relation to every single one of these projects outlined. Now the thing is, and what would have happened in most European countries, is that both would have been instigated long ago, uh, that there was and will be a capacity issue from London to the north, and remember, from the north to London. And that capacity issue was being met by HS2. It's not now. And of course, it has been one of the scandals of modern times, the quality of public transport in the north of England and, incidentally, in many other parts of the country. So that needs to to be addressed too. An ambitious country with uh, instinct for infrastructure and capital spending would do both without hesitation. Uh, And there was a glorious opportunity in 2010 to really get going on some of this stuff 
uh, when borrowing for government was so low, just ridiculously low. And instead, they chose to cut capital spending projects when they could have borrowed virtually no interest at all. So that's right, interest is higher now. But what an opportunity then. Uh, but that isn't happening. All we have is the ending of the rail project from Birmingham to Manchester. So that is one of the interesting elements of the speech, a policy decision which I think is a major, major error. And I don't think will work politically because I think there is not the trust around, in this case rightly, uh, to assume that the money will be automatically transferred into all these other rail projects. Uh, and then the rest of the speech was a sort of curious mishmash of his own personal sort of interests. He's quite right about smoking uh, and lifting the age where you can buy cigarettes. Um, the smoking ban, which many libertarian Tories opposed, was one of the most effective measures of the last Labour government in terms of addressing health issues. Um, then there was a bit about access to university. He was going to ban certain degrees. How is he going to do that? What will be the definition of degrees that are no longer allowed to be offered by universities? It was a sort of curious mix of... Uh, kind of a column for the Daily Mail and a supposedly deep argument about being the change maker taking tough decisions. And so I suspect, though you never know with these things, but I suspect it won't work politically. And the heart of it, this decision to scrap HS2, I think God knows what the rest of the world will be thinking about this country that just can't run a transport system. And it's odd to assume, though I know they will spin it as good news for the north of England, but when you're scrapping a line that was going to go to Manchester, and of course originally beyond, and so it should still, this lack of ambition, I say it's so much the product of treasury orthodoxy and almost an ideological reluctance to pull the levers of the state to deliver big projects. And I think it's politically inept as well in the sense that it will cause quite a big internal row in the Tory party. And I think when the list of alternative projects were just casually read out, there will be quite a lot of scrutiny about the feasibility of transferring all that money into these projects and the degree to which he can guarantee that will happen in the coming days. So yeah, not that uh, smart politically, not a particularly coherent speech, sort of had a kind of scattergun quality to it, uh, from, of course, a figure who's new to this. This was his first party conference speech as a leader. And they are difficult to get right in easier circumstances than the one he is in at the moment. And I completely acknowledge that. It is tough. Not only is it tough in terms of being a change maker when your party has been running things for so long, but he leads an unruly party 
The changing nature of the Conservative Party has been one of the most fascinating developments in recent decades. It's not just the last couple of years. Um, the Tories began to change under Margaret Thatcher, and it has intensified since. And, you know, mostly it is deeply depressing. You know, the, the sort of cry at fringe meetings for tax cuts without ever explaining what spending cuts they want to accompany the tax cuts. And, um, you know, the kind of whole stuff about woke and anti-woke and Suella Braverman conflating immigration with asylum and multiculturalism in like a sort of sub-O level essay and being hailed for it. And uh, it is it is all dark beyond this. And I'm going to end with this, if that's okay with you. Um, and it's a challenge for Labour next week. This is a party in deep trouble. But one thing you cannot accuse it of is being empty of ideas. The ideas are shallow. And by the way, I've heard and read many, there was uh, Lewis Goodall, who I think is brilliant, uh, rightly compared the conference at Manchester to uh, the Labour conference in 1980, uh, when you had fringe meetings from Tony Benn, then uh, just down the road, a fringe meeting with Shirley Williams, warning about a fascism on the left as well as on the right, and Tony Benn reeling off a list of things that Callaghan dropped before the manifesto in 79. It was, you know, I, I was, wasn't was there, but I kind of just old enough to be following it with fascination. Um, it was angry and heated and divided. But in fairness to that 80 conference, they were arguing over really big issues, economic policymaking, uh, Europe, defence, the role of the state, uh, the levels of accountability within a party and to a government. They, they, these were big, big themes from big, big figures. This is kind of, a say, tax cuts now or tax cuts later, uh, woke versus anti-woke. You know, it's, it's all, it's all low-level stuff. But there is an energy and a capacity to be animated about values and ideas and so on. And uh, if Labour become too cautious and technocratic at its conference next week, I, I think that will be a weakness. And it's interesting looking, I've been looking back preparing for uh, the uh, podcast next week on Labour. Uh, Blair's conference speeches before 97. Now, I've said a thousand times on this podcast, and I know most of you agree, the parallels with 97 are virtually non-existent. But it is interesting the degree to which Blair's speeches spoke about values, uh, and that it wasn't just incompetence that was uh, making the Tory government fall towards its doom, but that their values were outdated uh, for the... Uh, challenges of the late 90s. And I think some of the more ardent Blairites who uh, are part of Keir Starmer's entourage misread parts of the whole New Labour thing and just assume it was kind of 
technocratic reassurance bolstered by Blair's mesmerizing oratory and personality at that particular time. Uh, There were arguments about values and the policies that arise from values. And I think Keir Starmer needs to do a bit of that uh, next week to counter the this weird, dark, um, in some ways overexcited and at the same time subdued party conference. Very few MPs were in Manchester, for example. Anyway, there we are. Uh, so on to Liverpool. Dire times in many respects, but interesting times. So let's all get together uh, early next week from Liverpool, in my case, uh, wherever you are around the country and the world in your cases. Uh, But do keep the points and questions coming. I'll read as many as I can out uh, when we get together next time. Thanks for sparing the time for uh, these reflections. I'll be interested to hear what all of you in the cooperative uh, think about them and uh, what has happened in Manchester over the last few days and what should happen in Liverpool next week. Okay, take care. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just before you go, please leave a review. Please tell a friend or family member to start uh, download subscribing to the podcast. And yeah, if you could leave a review, but only if you like it and see as many of you as possible, please. Uh, It's compulsory uh, at King's Place on October the 23rd, where we pull all the different things together. Uh, You know, we've got these party conferences. We've got a whole range of by-elections coming up, including uh, Rutherglen. Glen. By the time you're listening to this, you might have heard the result of Rutherglen. Glen. Big, big by-election. Anyway, October the 23rd, you can get tickets in the blurb for the podcast or uh, at the King's Place website. And yeah, let's get together again very soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye.